Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. Now, Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, a retired traffic homicide detective from South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back. Today, we're going to finish our coverage of the wild and crazy ride that is the Erickson twins. Craziness. So last we left off, just as a reminder, Ursula, after being run over by a semi, was in the hospital being treated for her injuries. And Sabina, miraculously, although a car hit her and she literally flew into the air, somehow managed to escape any injury. And she was charged with battery on an officer, but was released from jail two days after the accident, after she pled guilty to her charges. So that's where we left off. Strap in and buckle up, because uh, this is about to be a wild ride. All right. On Monday, May 19th, 2008, Sabina is released from jail with only a clear plastic bag to hold all of the possessions she'd come into jail with. Okay. So I guess they do the same thing there that they do here with the plastic bag. (laughs) Meanwhile, 54-year-old Glenn Hollinshead is having a drink with his dog and his friend Peter Malloy at a local pub. Glenn was a self-employed welder, but he'd previously been an RAF airman and a qualified paramedic. So he'd lived a lot of lives in his short 50 years. (laughs) All right. After leaving jail... Sabina began wandering around an area known as Stoke-on-Kent. At around 9.30 p.m., Glenn and his friend Peter decided to leave the pub and walk back to Glenn's place to continue drinking and chatting. As the two are walking back to Glenn's house, they run into none other than Sabina Erickson. From across the street, Sabina yelled at the pair, That's a nice dog you've got there and she ran over to pet Glenn's dog, and the three strike up a conversation. Peter would later recall that Sabina was acting nervous, but other than that, behaved pretty normally. Peter told the BBC, quote, She seemed a little distressed, lost, certainly not very focused. She asked the men for directions to a local hotel as she explained that her sister had been in an accident and she was trying to find out which hospital she'd been taken to. She said she had nowhere to stay that evening and asked if they knew of a bed and breakfast she could possibly stay at as well. Glenn explained to Sabina that there were no hotels or bed and breakfasts nearby, and feeling bad for Sabina, Glenn offered to let her stay at his house until she was able to secure a hotel. Peter stated, quote, He was just being a good Samaritan. He'd seen someone that needed help. He was a really warm and helpful person. So the trio began making their way to Glenn's house, and Peter offered to hold Sabina's belongings. He took note of her belongings, because remember, they're in a clear plastic bag so we can see them. Yep. As, at the time, he found them odd, as she was only carrying two cell phones, a laptop, two packs of cigarettes, and a red wool cardigan. Interestingly, Sabina had been wearing the red cardigan when she'd run out into traffic but since leaving jail, she'd switched into her sister's green coat. Hmm, all right. When the three got back to Glenn's house on Duke Street, Sabina initially seemed relaxed. Glenn offered everyone a drink. 
Glenn also offered to help Sabina find her sister, as he was a prior paramedic and his brother was a doctor who worked at the local hospital. He explained that the next morning he could call his brother and find out which hospital Ursula may be located at. Okay. However, pretty quickly, both Glenn and Peter realized something was not quite right with Sabina. Peter later recounted that as they spoke, Sabina would continuously get up and look out of the windows nervously. He told the BBC, quote, I started asking again, you know, what's happened to your sister? And there was an abrupt change. She became slightly defensive. She just always went cold whenever you asked about what was up with her sister or why you were in Stoke-on-Kent. At the time, Peter assumed that Sabina may be trying to escape an abusive spouse. He also claimed that she would continuously offer the men cigarettes, but as they'd start to smoke them, she would snatch them out of their mouths saying, quote, they might be poisoned, you can't have them. <laughs> Peter found this especially odd, as Sabina had been smoking the cigarettes all night. Why would she be smoking these cigarettes if she feared they'd been poisoned, and why would anyone have poisoned her cigarettes in the first place? Following these events, Peter began to get pretty freaked out. He kept looking to Glenn, but Glenn seemed concerned for Sabina and repeatedly told Peter, it's all right. However, by about 11.45 p.m., Peter had had enough of Sabina's odd behavior and left, while Glenn and Sabina remained in the home. He later recalled, quote, There was this growing fear inside of me, thinking, who is this woman? She's hiding from someone. The next day, at approximately 12 p.m., Glenn called his brother Paul and explained the situation to him and asked him to find out where Ursula Erickson was being treated. Paul told the BBC, quote, Glenn seemed his normal, cheerful self, you know. He told me she was a bit distressed and he didn't want her walking the streets. And her sister and her were involved in an accident on the M6 and her sister's in A&E. Could you find out any more information? He seemed quite calm, a normal conversation. I could just hear her voice in the background. A little after 7 p.m., Glenn began cooking dinner for he and Sabina, but he realized he was out of tea bags, so he left the house and went over to his neighbor, Frank Booth, who was busy washing his car in the alleyway between their homes, and he asked Frank to borrow some tea bags. Only one minute later, after Frank had given Glenn the tea bags, Frank watched as Glenn stumbled out of his house bleeding, shouting, She stabbed me. Before he collapsed to the ground, Frank ran over to attempt to staunch the bleeding. He recalled, quote, He said, I'm dying, I'm dying. I said, You can't be dying here in this day and age. You'll be okay. It's not like you. And he laughed a bit. But sadly, moments later, Glenn died in Frank's arms. The last words he uttered were, quote, Look after my dog for me. Holy shit. I know, horrible. And I just think that's so sad that he knew he was dying and yeah. his last wish was, make sure someone Take takes care, care of my dog. dog. Yeah. Wow. Frank told BBC, quote, I don't want to go through that again, no matter what happens. Yeah. She yeah, poor guy. I, guess. I can't imagine. Oh, crazy. It was later determined that Sabina had managed to stab Glenn five times in that one minute. Holy shit, all right. Frank ran into his home and quickly called 999. Meanwhile, CCTV footage caught Sabina fleeing from Glenn's house holding a lump hammer. So do you know what a lump hammer is? A lump hammer? So I had to look it up. I didn't know what it was either. It's basically like a sledgehammer, except it has a shorter handle. Gotcha. Okay. 
but it's you know a metal it's that right. big metal yeah like we call them here like a five pound sledge or they're little they're smaller yeah. or whatever yeah she ran down the street repeatedly striking herself over the head with the hammer what so she's running down the street and hitting herself over the head with this what hammer. What the actual fuck is going on with this lady? Isn't it crazy? Yes. A passing motorist named Joshua Gradage saw this, stopped his car, and jumped out, trying to stop Sabina from severely injuring herself. He remembered, quote, I saw a woman running from the corner of my eye, and I looked again and I saw her smashing herself on the head with a hammer. I just got a sickening feeling in my stomach. I remember seeing lots of blood on her head. Her hair was matted with blood. It was proper tunnel vision. I just put my hand straight on that hammer and lowered it, and I was just, like, completely zoned in on the hammer. She was making crazy grunting noises the whole time, really primitive type of rage. So he's trying to pull this hammer out of her hand. She's fighting him and basically making animal noises wow. at okay. him. The Good Samaritan tackled Sabina and attempted to remove the hammer from her hand. While wrestling with the man, Sabina managed to take a hidden roof tile out of her pocket and smash it down on the man's head. So poor Joshua. Wow. He's just trying to help this crazy lady and he gets Smashing smashed on the head with roof a roof tile. tile. The fuck does she find a roof tile? Well, that's the other thing. They never really say okay. where she managed to grab right. that. But yeah, she had a roof tile randomly hidden in her pocket. By this point, paramedics had arrived on the scene and they began chasing Sabina in their vehicle. The paramedics chased Sabina all the way to a bridge at Heron Cross. The bridge was 40 feet high, and a highway known as the A-50 runs underneath it. Before the paramedics could stop her, Sabina jumped from the bridge and landed on the highway below, breaking both of her ankles. Ouch. Fuck. This lady really likes to jump on highways. What are the chances, though? You get hit by a car, you're fine. Jump off a bridge, you only break your ankles. Like, what the... Smash yourself in the head with a fucking hammer. like. So the paramedics rushed down to her, and Sabina once again was rushed to the local ER, where it was later determined that Sabina had managed to fracture her own skull with the hammer because she'd been hitting herself that hard. Oh, my Lord. All right. Wild. Meanwhile, Glenn's brother Paul was notified about his brother's murder. He rushed over to Glenn's house. He remembered, quote, I didn't want to walk in the house. My stomach was turning. Five stab wounds to somebody within 70 seconds. And you try and picture how could it happen. I could see that he'd obviously been making someone something to eat, making a meal. And this is what they do to you? You're just trying to help someone out and they end up stabbing you. I felt quite sick, to be honest. Just quite horrified. The thought goes through your head all the time, you know. What did he actually think at the time? Hmm. So crazy. It is. That's, and sad. Yeah. Three months following the murder, in September of 2008, Sabina's sister Ursula is finally discharged from the hospital. So she spent three months recovering from okay. getting hit by the semi. All right. Once she was discharged, she decided not to return to her home in the U.S. and instead returns to her home country of Sweden. The same month, Sabina is also discharged. However, she is taken into custody and charged with Glenn Hollinshead's murder. All right, I was gonna say. Strangely, when she is questioned by investigators, Sabina once again refuses to give any reasoning for her bizarre behavior back in May. The lead investigator on her case explained to the BBC, quote, Sabina Erickson chose to say no comment to every question that was put to her. So she has never given an account for any of her actions during May of 2008 in England. 
there was overwhelming evidence that Sabina Erickson was connected to the death of Mr. Hollinshead. Hmm. So to this day, she's never... Wow. just properly, just properly crazy, I guess. 18 months later, Sabina has her first appearance in court. The judge assigned to the case would later admit that it was the most difficult case he'd ever presided over. The judge ordered that Sabina be assessed by two psychiatrists, one for the prosecution and one for the defense. Surprising to no one, both agreed that at the time of Glenn's murder, Sabina had in fact been mentally ill. Despite this, both diagnosed Sabina with different illnesses. Okay. The defense's psychiatrist determined that Sabina suffered from induced delusional disorder, also known as folie adieu. Remember folie adieu? No. When we did our very first episode ever, the Trump family, remember the uh, Australian family that went on that crazy road trip? Yes. And they later said that they that was one of the theories that they the had folie adieu. adieu. All right. Okay. For those of you who do not remember, folie adieu translates to folly of two or madness of two. It's an extremely rare condition in which one of the two people involved has a diagnosable psychotic illness and the second person is so close to their mentally ill counterpart that they almost become infected by their psychosis as well. And they begin to take on the delusional beliefs of the person who is mentally ill. And then the two begin to reinforce the other's delusions and delusional behavior. So Sabina was the mentally ill one and Ursula was just like caught up in it. Was right. like follow like following her or, or whatever. Supposedly so, yeah. Right. Okay. That's the defense's psychiatrist. Gotcha. The psychiatrist also posited that Sabina and Ursula were especially susceptible to folly adieu because they were twins and twins share a uniquely close bond both emotionally and genetically. So basically, he was saying that because they share the same genetics as identical twins, that if one is predisposed to psychosis, then it stands to reason that so is the other. Okay. Because, you know, that's the genetic illness. Okay. The prosecution psychiatrist determined that Sabina suffered from acute polymorphic psychotic disorder. This disorder is also rare, but does not affect a person for the entirety of their life. The disorder is also known as puff of madness because it appears unexpectedly and then is gone just as unexpectedly. Oh, okay. In the case of acute polymorphic psychotic disorder, the person usually only experiences psychosis for two to three weeks and then goes back to being completely normal. Wow. But like repeatedly or? So they can have multiple? relapses. Okay. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just have this, for whatever reason, they have this one-time psychotic episode, and then that's it. Wow, okay. Only one-third of people who suffer from this relapse again. So it it is possible, but it's it's not very likely. Wow, that's interesting. Both psychiatrists readily admitted that the footage from the M6 motorway played a huge part in their diagnoses as they both believed that the footage proved that both women were in the midst of a psychotic delusion at the time it was filmed. Which, if you watch it, it's pretty obvious. Right, okay. I am not a psychiatrist by any means, but it was obvious to me. Yeah, that shit was crazy. Glenn's family did not dispute the fact that Sabina was obviously mentally ill at the time of the murder. However, they blamed the police for what occurred, as they firmly believed that officers should not have released Sabina on her own recognizance considering her obviously fragile mental state. Agreed. I also agree. 
Glenn's brother Paul stated, quote, any normal person would look at that and say, well, there's something going on here. This is just not normal behavior. And to say someone is fit after that, I just don't believe it. Glenn's other brother, Gary, said, quote, It's the behavior of two people that are clearly very, very disturbed mentally. These people need to be held and assessed very, very thoroughly for their protection and for members of the public's protection. Had a psychologist seen the footage that I and now hundreds of thousands of people have now seen, I think that he probably would have reached the same conclusion as everybody. These people were severely mentally disturbed. I think that Sabina needed protecting from herself. And from everybody else, clearly. Yeah. However, the police department denies any responsibility for Glenn's murder. Of course. Detective Superintendent Dave Meller told the BBC, quote, She was seen on four separate occasions by a police surgeon, a consultant psychiatrist, and a suitably qualified social worker. Those medical professionals were satisfied that there was no obvious sign of any mental or psychological illness. Well, clearly they were wrong. Did you say police surgeon? Yeah, they have a police surgeon over there. Isn't that, isn't that kind of cool? I guess that's the equivalent of like our surgeon general, kind of like. I don't really know. Never heard of that. Our uh, listeners from England, let us know yeah, if you know. Police surgeon. But how crazy is it that she was seen by all these people and they all were like, no, she's fine. Let her go. She's great. That's going to be the posture that they take naturally because they don't want to, you know, admit. Well, I have some things to say about this, but I'll, I'll wait till okay. the end. All right. However, when they evaluated Sabina, these medical professionals were not shown the footage of Sabina and Ursula from the M6 motorway. Essentially, all that these medical professionals did was interview Sabina while she was in jail. Right. Which, that's silly to me. Um, you definitely should have seen the footage because how can you really make a diagnosis when you haven't even seen the crux of the problem? Yeah. I mean, but yeah, but just to, to be fair, to devil's advocate, a lot of times that footage, you don't have it that, you know, that readily available. I know in the UK, their CCTV is everywhere and, and I think they can obtain it pretty quickly. But yeah. if it wasn't available in that moment, you know, we're talking like the day of, the day after, whatever, then... You know, I'm not making an excuse, you know, for them for, you know, making a wrong decision or whatever. But, you know, so you basically have to go with the information you have at that moment. In their defense of that, you know, I would say that, you know, to a point. Right. Several psychiatrists later asserted that the reason Sabina most likely seemed less psychotic in jail was because she'd been sedated several hours earlier, which can result in a decrease of psychotic symptoms until the entirety of the drug wears off. Unfortunately, because Ursula was now residing in Sweden, the psychiatrists who evaluated Sabina for court could not also evaluate Ursula, and they had to rely on medical notes from her time in the hospital in England. This also made it difficult for both psychiatrists to determine an exact diagnosis for Sabina. And on top of that, Sabina still refused to speak about the events on the M6 motorway or the day of Glenn's murder. All right. However, both psychiatrists also agreed that as of the time of their assessments, Sabina had fully recovered from her mental psychosis and was no longer experiencing delusions of any kind. Eventually, at the advice of her attorney, Sabina pled guilty by reason of diminished responsibility. The prosecution accepted her plea, and now it was up to the judge to determine her sentence. The judge struggled with his decision because, as Sabina was no longer considered mentally ill, he could not have her committed to a psychiatric institution. 
But as she was mentally ill at the time of the crime, he also couldn't sentence her to prison either. At this point, the judge asked both psychiatrists to assess whether Sabina was a risk to the public if she was freed. Both psychiatrists assured the judge that she was at very low risk of reoffending. Because Sabina is considered low risk under English law, the judge is required to give her a fixed prison sentence with no monitoring after release. Ultimately, the judge sentenced Sabina to five years in prison. Wow. Justice Saunders stated, quote, I understand that this sentence will seem entirely inadequate to the relatives of the deceased. However, I have sentenced on the basis that the reason for the killing was the mental illness and therefore the culpability of the defendant is low, and therefore the sentence I have passed is designed to protect the public. It is not designed to reflect the grief the relatives have suffered or to measure the value of Mr. Hollenhead's life. No sentence that I could pass could do that. It is a sentence which I hope fairly measures a truly tragic event. Sabina was suffering from delusions which she believed to be true, and they dictated her behavior. It is not one of those cases where the defendant could have done something to avoid the onset. Yeah, fair. Yeah, I mean... I mean, it's very obvious that she was, you know, it's not like she was faking it. She clearly... <laughs> Correct, yeah. There's definitely something going on there. I mean, if you're going to crack your own right. skull open with a, a hammer... She was definitely not in, what's the word? Her right mind. Yeah, well, I, hate, I didn't want to say that. I could just crack her head open. Well, the, uh, <laughs> I guess that was a poor choice of words, but... <laughs> All right, well, you know, whatever. We went there. Following Sabina's sentencing, Glenn's brother Gary explained, quote, We don't hold her responsible, the same as we wouldn't blame a rabid dog for biting someone. She is ill, and to a large degree, not responsible for her actions. But her mental disorder should have been recognized much earlier. I do question the criminal justice system for allowing somebody like this to be let out when she is capable of committing such a crime. Her mental condition should have been properly assessed after what she did on the motorway and the experiences the police had. Her mental disorder should have been picked up prior to her being let out into the community. Glenn saw Erickson in distress and was just trying to help. He wasn't slow in coming forward to help somebody in distress. It was in his nature. He was trying to help. He would help anybody. If he saw a fight in the street and a guy was losing, he would help. Following Sabina's sentencing, her sister Ursula moved back to the United States, and the two still spoke frequently while Sabina was in prison. Of the twins, Glenn's brother Paul sarcastically told the BBC, quote, I think it's very nice that they've got a future. Off they go, happy families. He also stated, quote, If she's in touch with her sister... Who's to say it wouldn't trigger it all again? If this did happen again, there would be a lot of questions to be answered. Yep, for sure. Glenn's friend, Peter Malloy, wanted his friend to be remembered for all of the light and positivity he brought to the world. He told the BBC, quote, He always wanted people to understand that they could better themselves and go out there and see the world. Sabina was paroled from prison in 2011 and has since returned to Sweden. It is unclear if Sabina ever reconnected with her husband or her children. Yeah, I was going to ask, like, what the hell happened Because they there? were in Ireland. Right. And she went, she lives in Sweden now, so. Mm, okay. Or at least the last anyone knew. Right. Because it's also unclear where, where Sabina or Ursula resides today. Really? Yep. So, and I, I dug very deep and I couldn't find anything about it. The last anyone knew was when she got paroled in 2011. She was. Wow. Sabina was in 
Sweden and her sister was back in the U.S., back with us somewhere. And I couldn't even figure out what state. Mm. But Ursula's around here somewhere. Yeah, all right. But going back to the police not really taking responsibility for this, I think the problem with that is, don't get me wrong, fundamentally, are they responsible for her actions? No, I don't think any, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I don't think anyone could have predicted what was going to happen. And I, I firmly believe if the police did know that that was going to happen, they would have done something. Correct. But I think the problem with them not accepting any responsibility is I think the appropriate way to handle it would be to to say exactly that. Listen, we, we didn't know, but moving forward, we have to make changes to how we do right. things yes. because clearly the way that we're handling cases of this nature is not working. Right. So it, it annoys me that they just are like, no, 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 everything's fine and we're going to keep things the same and right. don't look over here. We didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> Nothing to see here. Just keep moving. You should use cases like this to, you know, make changes and right. try to ensure that, you know, the same thing w- isn't going to occur again in the future. Absolutely. Like, like historically, you know, change only comes after tragedy, usually. Right. And I see both sides of it. Like, I, I understand, like, as a as a department, you know, as law enforcement department or, you know, to come out and say, well, let me preface that by saying today is a lot different than law enforcement. You know, even back in 2011, I'm sure everybody, like everybody's into this transparency thing, you know, transparency, transparent, transparency. There it is. Transparency. Transparency, which is needed. Um, And we've discussed this before, but at the same time, when it comes to law enforcement and things like that, the way things are approached or changed and stuff doesn't necessarily need to be publicized as everybody thinks it should be. And I only say that because when you enact change, there's growing pains and there's going to be a set amount of time where you have to work out the kinks, the kinks. so to speak. Yeah. So right. to just say, you know, to just come forward and say, yeah, we messed up and we're going to change. Yes, that should be the right thing to do. However, as an agency, as a department, as, you know, a government or whatever, I think it's it's always important to try to save face because when you do admit fault, regardless of people will applaud you and say, yes, that's the right thing to do. There's going to be people that say, oh, you fucked up. Right. And I'm not, and I'm not saying to like hide stuff or, you know, whatever, but you have to allow these entities to make the changes through their own, I guess, avenues or the way that they want it done. Not necessarily the way the public says it should be done. And I see both sides of it. Like that that's a wrong way to think from like a civilian, like or from the public standpoint. But having been in law enforcement and stuff, to enact change is very, very hard. And like uh, I'm the perfect example. When I went through the academy, you know, back in nineteen ninety five, the way that they taught me to be a police officer is very similar, but a lot different than how they're taught how to be police today. And it's just right. because of the culture, because of, you know, mistakes that have been made historically, you know, through through the ages and stuff. But I was the old dog and I learned a certain way. And for me to change was very difficult. And, you know, the modern age and computers and, you know, for an old dog, and I'm, I'm throwing quotations in the air, it's tough. We hand wrote all our reports. Now everything's like, 
at least the department I worked for, everything went to computers. Right. Checks were done on the computer when before I had to, to raise the dispatcher and had to go through like an information channel to get information on somebody. Like, so those changes, although necessary and they help for an old dog or an old timer or a veteran or whatever, you know, it has growing pains. So the same thing with the totality of the department and stuff. So, you know, like I said, the kinks need to be worked out and you need to allow them to do that. So, yeah, I, th I think especially in a bureaucratic system, I think that change is never going to happen overnight. Correct. There's too many moving parts and too many, a lot of things. But right. I definitely think that at least I'm hoping that at some level of the government over there that they looked at this case and were like, yeah, we got to. Uh, yes. And, and while we got to do something. And it's very important to acknowledge when mistakes are made. Like, and by acknowledge, I mean not necessarily saying, yeah, we fucked up, but saying, we know this happened. We're making attempts or we're making changes to better our procedures right. or whatever. Like, you know, however that's addressed. And, and that's, that's like my hope would be. And I think everybody's hope is just we want to get better. Like, you know. Well, and I think that's all, that's all that most people expect. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of distrust in law enforcement. Absolutely. And I think that if more departments and more officers reacted in that way, I think it would do a lot to build trust in the police. Yeah, uh, I agree with that for sure. And, and I think a lot of departments and a lot of officers personally uh, that I've worked with, they strive to do the best job they can. And, you know, and they're not afraid to you know to admit i made mistakes uh you know i always tried to learn from them i always you know went to training stuff like that um and i think the majority of law enforcement tries to do the best that they can having said that i understand there's the perception of law enforcement you know some people don't trust law enforcement or whatever but it's a necessary evil that we need to because if we didn't have you know i hate to say if we didn't have law enforcement you know it would be anarchy right you know so it's a, like a balancing act. And I think the majority, at least the people that I worked with, the majority of them do try to do the best job that they can. So I also think that also would help to build trust again in law enforcement is when there are those officers who are clearly and I'm not talking about, you know, just a small mistake here or there. I'm talking about the officers that are clearly doing the wrong yeah. things and in an intentional way, I think we need to or the department needs to handle that with a severe hundred percent a severe punishment and obviously that's agreed would have to match whatever the crime is absolutely but i think that's an, another problem that's been a historical problem is for sure it just ends up being a slap on the wrist or something and i think that that angers the public because they're like no, he did, he was not performing his job adequately. He was doing bad things and he deserves to be punished just like anybody else would be. Right. And well, I mean and and just like the mentality of law enforcement like back back in the day, yes, officers were protected even when they did wrong, and it kind of goes back to a not admitting guilt naturally, but the like the brotherhood and again right. I'm throwing the quotations up, but for a long long time it was like it was law enforcement against everybody that's what it was right it's not until recent times when you had community policing and you know embracing the public and the community and bringing them in and showing them what we do and, and making them a partner in enforcing the law and i think it's very successful 
when they do that. Yeah. So having said that, yes, the naturally the the reputation is there for you know cops taking care of other cops, but those days are are few and far between. When a cop messes up, you know, it's at least it's been my experience recently. It's addressed and it's taken care of. Right, and also that's you worked for a, a very big department that's kind of in the public eye. Right. Whereas I feel like. Obviously, it happens all over the place. We've seen it on the news, yes, you know, for sure. But I do just from doing even, you know, this podcast, I do find that a lot of the sort of bad stuff that goes on, it seems to be in these smaller departments right. that they're really not held accountable by the public as much as these bigger right. departments that are in big cities, you know? Yeah, that. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's everywhere, though. I mean, like even in my department, right. have, but it's addressed, it's taken care of. It's, you know, like and. As a former police officer, fuck those guys. Yeah. And I, and I say that very, very loud and proud. I never wanted a corrupt fucking person working with me. I had officers that I had to throw off my scenes because they just agitated the situation. Like, no problem. Maybe I can't do anything about it, but you need to get the fuck away from me. Like, Yeah. And the majority of us, that's how we feel. Like, you know, fuck you. You're tarnishing our reputation. Right. And we're just trying to, we're doing the best job that we can do. And and that's why I I mean that's why I was I liked helping people I wanted to, you know, make a difference in whatever small minuscule way I could have you know I didn't think I was gonna you know change the world but you know I wanted to help and I I strived for that all the time so when that kind of shit happens and then naturally the public's gonna be like oh you know fuck them which I understand right but it's you know it's on it's it's sad because we're the same way fuck those fuck those guys like. We don't want them. Right. So, you know, I get it. I, you know, I, I see it. And, you know, and I think today is a lot better than it was, you know, 25 years ago as far as like the transparency and, and stuff like that. But, you know, you still have to allow them to, to make the changes and do the things they need to do. Right. Again, it's a balancing act. And, you know, I leave that to like the chiefs and the, <laughs> right. you know, the administration and stuff. So. Because they're ultimately the ones that are responsible to make those changes. So, Right. So we do have a question. This question is from Donna. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. If, if I'm pronouncing it wrong, let me know. But I'm pretty sure it's Donna. So this question's for you. Okay. Hello, Donna. So I thought after this kind of sad and insane case, I thought this was a good question, a nice lighthearted question to answer okay. or, or to end on. All right. So she says, Mark, what's the most wholesome thing you've witnessed or experienced while you were working as a police officer? Ooh. So what's one of the best things you've ever seen instead of, you know, sad and violent? Best things I've seen. It's hmm. a good question. I know there was, uh, well, one time that involved involved me, I went to a uh, shoplifting call and it was a, it was a mother who was trying to steal food for the family. And uh, this place, this I still remember, it's the supermarket. And uh, they were like adamant about pressing charges, and I paid for the food. And You just said, I'm paying for this and yeah, let her have and it? let her have it, yeah, because I wasn't going to put her in jail for her. Aw. Well, yeah, because she's obviously struggling. I guess I, I really don't have one specific incident, but I've been on numerous calls, like crashes and stuff, where I see the public stopping and helping and, you know, trying to, you know, to help. So I think that's, it makes me angry when people get attacked. You see these videos like on Instagram or whatever of like these, you know, 
elderly people getting punched or you know somebody Ugh. getting jumped and instead of somebody helping them people just like they re- they're filming they're it filming it yeah so when when somebody like when the public stops takes time out of their you know their day puts themselves in danger or involves themselves when they don't need to i think that's probably like the best way for me to answer like i've seen that a lot it reminds me of um there's a um, mr rogers quote where he he said that his mom always told him growing up when he would see you know horrible things on the news mm-hmm. that he should concentrate on the people helping instead of on the right. negative yeah yeah don't give them the that, that's why i don't i mean unfortunately we we do a podcast of you know of, of true crime and, and people that do you know bad things but i always get angry when a criminal gets news time and stuff but it's yeah but it's news you know so like i said to have one specific wholesome thing that i've seen i think that's just that's it in 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 its entirety is when people help yeah i don't have like one specific time that no i think that was a good answer i mean i'm sure you don't really get to see much wholesome stuff as a police officer no no you don't unfortunately like uh 911 like people call 911 like to to solve their problems and the problems are bad (laughs) i always make a joke like you know people love firefighters and they don't like cops and proof of that is if you ever go to a store and you buy like a little figurine of a firefighter, they're always like petting a dog or holding a kid. Yeah. Try to buy one of a cop. He's got a club in his hand or a gun or. Yeah. <laughs> so like that's always kind of been my joke is like people love firefighters and don't like police. And it's represented in these little, you know, statues and figurines and stuff. Figurines. Yeah. So, but I think that, you know, that's it. Like when, when people help other people, that's, I think the most, you know, because naturally that's what I'm, I'm paid to do or was paid to do. So I had to, I had a, a, a duty to act. But when people, like I said, just civilians or everyday run-of-the-mill people stop to help and render aid or... Yeah, it it sort of uh, gives you hope for humanity. Or you know what? I love the, I, well, I don't say I love the videos, but the videos of like, I've seen many where like a police officer is like struggling with a subject and trying to take them into custody or whatever and civilians stop and help the police officer like... Yeah, I've seen those too. God bless because that, you know... When a cop fights, he's fighting for his life. Yeah. At the end of the day, like every fight is a fight for your life because there's a gun involved. You know, cops always got a gun and not necessarily that the person's intention is to kill the cop, but kind of the mindset you have to have is like you get into an altercation, you're fighting for your life. Yeah. So when people help, I'm going to say it one more time, when when people stop <laughs> and help, whether it's the cops or others, other, you know, helping other citizens or whatever, that's the most wholesome thing that I think anybody can do as human beings or, you know, in general, so. I agree. I like that answer. Yeah. I mean, everything else I've seen has been shit. Yeah. <laughs> for the most part. Not everything, but, you know. Well, I wanted to make an announcement. We've had quite a lot of people who have been asking about uh, merch. Yes. So we are working on it. We can't really give you a release date as of yet, but just keep your ears and eyes open. We're working on We're it. We're going through some legalities. So we're going, yeah, we're trying to work out the legal side of it. So just bear with us. But yes, we will have some. Thank you for your interest, though. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So that is the story of the Erickson sisters. I have to say that that was, and just the fact that they're like, they're both still living and we don't have a fucking clue other than the diagnosis from the psychiatrist saying they had these, you know, momentary lapses or whatever you want to call it, you know, psychosis, whatever. But, like, what the actual fuck? Yeah. It's crazy. Well, and I think that's part of the mystery of the whole case is we never really got any answers. And the fact that no one knows what they're doing now. Right, yeah. <laughs> Who, they could be listening to us. 
Well, if you are, hi. Ursula's the one in the U.S., right, Ursula? Yeah. If you're listening, you know, and you feel like adding anything. Yeah, let us know. (laughs) (laughs) It was a wild ride. The poor guy lost his life trying to help her, and, you know, like, it's... But nobody... And nobody knows, like, no explanation, family, like, what the fuck? Well, and I do think it's a little fucked up that they... Don't get me wrong, I don't think that... They owe an explanation to anybody except Glenn's family. Right. But I do think it's a little fucked up that because if, okay, I I 100% do believe that she was having a psychotic episode. For sure. But if it were me and I like, you know, eventually came to from that and realized what I did, I would be apologizing to that family profusely. Right. I do think it's a little, and and you know what? They may not want to hear it and that's, you know, their prerogative. They're entitled to that. But I think... It's a little strange to me that she's never even, like, tried to reach out to the family and apologize or, like, you know, she could have even written them a letter or something. Yeah, I mean, just the fact that she left her family, like, her kids, just... Yeah, because even, which, to be fair, maybe after the fact, the husband was like, I'm over this bullshit, like, bye. Yeah, right, like, we don't, right, we don't know that history, but it's still, like, she just, her sister flew over and then they up and just left. Okay, you got kids, like, I mean, I'm a parent, I can't see leaving my children and not talking to them, not, you know, something, a phone call, something like. Yeah, there's, weird. There's too many unanswered questions. Yeah. yeah. It's like, what the hell? But, you know, so is life, I guess. So is life. We'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And um, until then, if you would like to submit a case, there's a link in the show notes. And you could always also email us at can'tmakethisshitup at gmail.com. You can also submit questions at those two places. So, yeah, we hope that you do. And until next week, bye. Bye. Swear to God. Be good a little bit.